So hopefully you are now in Jonah chapter 2. If you are, please do me a favor and just scroll one verse back to the last verse of chapter 1. If you remember back to the sermon I preached a couple weeks ago on Jonah chapter 1, you probably noticed that we didn't actually finish out the chapter. So if you have a Bible with footnotes, I want you to notice that the Hebrew versions of Scripture, Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 in the Hebrew Bible is actually Jonah chapter 2 verse 1. They have a different chapter divider. Please remember, chapter and verse numbers are not inspired by God. They were added later by men who helped uh, to catalog the scripture in a way that can be quickly referenced. But I do think that verse 17 does fit much better here with the content of chapter 2. This is where we are introduced, of course, to the big fish. Now, if I were to ask you, or even if we were to go out on the street and ask a random stranger about the book of Jonah, most likely the first thing that would be mentioned is the fish. It even got a call out in the very first Avengers movie. That usually gets the predominant focus of our attention. But in reality, the fish is not a major player in this book. And in fact, if Jonah were to be made into a movie, the fish really is only billed as an extra. It is a very small part in the, in the text. He does not get much screen time at all. In fact, he has not even ascribed any motivations. He is morally neutral as a character. He is not the antagonist. The fish is not the protagonist. He's just a fish. In fact, he's nothing more than transportation. In fact, Jonah is not even the main character in this book. If you look at all of the action verbs and determine who it is that is doing the action, the number one actor in this narrative is actually God himself. However, the fish is the prime cause for controversy regarding this book. It's absolutely wild, and of course it is, to think that a human being could be consumed by an ocean-dwelling creature and then three days later to be spit up on land and actually survive. This has led many people to treat the story of Jonah like some kind of an allegory or an epic rather than literal history. But this story is not fiction. The events are absolutely true. And if you doubt it, let me just ask one question. Why? Why would you doubt this story? Of all of the stories in the scripture, actually this one is one of the most believable. Understand what is taking place here. Consider that God often uses animals and controls them for the purposes of his will. What about the plagues in Egypt? How many of those included creatures? What about the ravens that fed Elijah? Ravens fed Elijah. How many of you guys have seen birds eat? Birds are vicious. They are evil creatures. I have been telling you this for years. It is still true. They are monsters, and when you put food on the ground, just go to Central Park, throw some food, and see what the pigeons do to each other. You will see some of them with clubbed feet because the others peck their feet off because they hate each other, they hoard food, they are selfish as creatures get. Yet, God used ravens to feed Elijah. They would bring him food every day. They were working contrary to their nature, which is the work of the Lord alone. But notice, the fish wasn't operating contrary to its nature. It was doing exactly what God designed it to do. Fish eat things, and it is certainly going to stand to reason that a big fish would be searching for a big meal, and when you see something floundering through the ocean, like a Jonah, you consume it. So here's a picture of my son, Athanasius. Uh, this was us uh, earlier this year fishing at the pond at my grandparents' house where I often swam and fished as a kid. 
You'll notice this little fish. Don't be deceived by the perspective here. That fish is much different in size than it appears in the picture. It's about an inch and a half long. Um, and this poor fish was caught at least 11 times. And I know that because of the number of holes that eventually were produced in the same fish's face. Fishing is a brutal sport. You, you know, the removal of the hook is a, a very damaging thing to the mouth of the fish. And as we saw this fish over and over, it consumed the bait constantly. So he would literally just drop the, the bait off of the edge of the dock three inches away, and the fish would go for the bait over and over and over again. Why? Because fish operate within their nature, which is to eat whatever is in front of them. And I kept wondering, why in the world would this fish not just go to the other side of the pond already? Why not just figure out this is a bad day to eat worms? Just go away. But no, he kept consuming the same fish. Fish operate in uh, order with their own nature, which is to consume whatever is in front of them. The fish in the book of Jonah was placed in this location by God. It probably was something that God... Before this fish was even spawned, God knew this fish needed to be in this location at this time, and he was directed by God to go there to consume Jonah and then go back to shore. Jonah bought a one-way ticket away from God to the west, so God got him a one-way ticket back to the east. Now, don't you find it strange that God created animals that live in the ocean but are required to breathe air in order to live? Why would God make a mammalian creature to dwell in the depths of the sea? Who knows the mind of God, but perhaps in God's created order, when he was designing all things, perhaps one of the reasons God made air-breathing, sea-dwelling creatures was for the express purpose of finding this rebel and returning him in the right direction. Notice that God used this creature in Jonah's life to help him, not to harm him. In order to be an uncomfortable yet an air-filled submarine for this insolent runaway, God used a fish to turn him back to Assyria. Now, if you're still doubting the legitimacy of this story, consider the fact that Jesus actually referenced the book of Jonah on three occasions as genuine history. And as he parallels his own ministry to this event, we see that he is declaring that what he is doing is being done in relation to the ministry of Jonah, which we will see a little later in the sermon. So if you reject this story as fiction, then you must also reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ as fiction, which he parallels to this ministry of Jonah. Now, there are certainly parts of the Bible which are to be understood as poetry. And there are certainly parts of the Bible which are to be understood as metaphor. But this is not one of them. It is never presented that way, and you cannot pick and choose which parts of the Bible to take literally. It's all or it's nothing. And the correct answer here is that it is all true. So I want us to be very careful here because, as I have sp said, it'd be really easy to spend a lot of time focusing in the details of the fish. But as you will see, the text barely speaks about that at all. In fact, I honestly find it almost laughable how little attention this incredible event gets. But that's to say that that is not the point. It is the focus of this text that God is working out his relationship between himself and Jonah on the grand stage of evangelism to one of the greatest empires in the history of our world. So please follow along now as we begin reading in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. 
Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped about my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with stead, with voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. God, our Father, as we come together and study this prayer of Jonah today, I pray, Lord, that you would work in each one of us in such a way that we would understand ourselves by understanding first the nature of your holiness, your righteousness, and your love. Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves in relationship to you, just as Jonah was required to do in this text. We pray, Lord, that today you would be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In order to break down this text in a way that is easily absorbable, what I've done is try to offer six ways that we can take takeaways from chapter 2. Now, if you like taking notes, don't worry. I'm going to cover this again. I'll repeat these when we get to them. But I will just run through for you really quickly. Here's what we're going to consider. First, sin results in distance from God. Secondly, sin results in prayerlessness. Third, sin results in discipline. Fourth, sin requires sacrifice. Fifth, sin requires salvation. And sixth, sin requires a savior. Let's dive right in, shall we? First, we see that sin results in distance from God. Jonah is a beautifully poetic book, and you see that in a variety of ways. For example, in this prayer, you will notice that Jonah is probably more eloquent at prayer than you or I are, and he's in the middle of being digested by a fish. But the entire book is actually filled with poetic features, and there's some really beautiful linguistic markers that help us to understand the story, and some of these are very subtle. And so what they are designed to do is either consciously or subconsciously point us in a direction of thinking. One such example can be found in the direction of Jonah's travels. Let me just show you. Please turn back one page and follow along with your finger and look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down in, uh, into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now in verse 5, we see that Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he laid down. Then Jonah is thrown into the sea where he goes down, 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 as it says. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says that he has gone down to the roots of the mountain. And then it says that he goes down to the gates of Sheol itself. Every single direction word that we see in this entire book is down. Sin results in us moving one direction. When we sin, we are making a conscious choice to attempt to move away from the presence of the Lord. And if you are a child of God, you belong to him and his love for you doesn't fade. His pursuit of you will not change, but you can attempt to run. But what does, what does this change when he tries to run? Not his relationship to God, no, but what it does change is that you feel distant from God. You will not be able to have joy in him. My friend Brian Payne spoke at a men's conference for our church all the way back in 2015, right after we started, and he said at our men's conference, the most miserable person is not an unbeliever, but a believer who is in sin. 
they are miserable, miserable because there is too much sin in their life to enjoy God and too much God in their life to enjoy sin. That's a great way to explain it. I often speak to believers who tell me that they are struggling to have joy in the Lord. And they will ask me how to restore that joy. And honestly, the biggest cause of joylessness is sinfulness. When we are unwilling to let go of sin of any kind, our hearts become hardened to the Lord. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. But we have sought lesser things and we have run from him and we have pursued our own sin. That's exactly what we see with Jonah. He is running And every direction is down and away from the presence of the Lord. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. Jonah, he wanted to go to Tarshish, but instead, his sin took him to the bottom of the sea. You might say that you want to just go this far. That's all you want. Just a little satisfaction temporarily that to yell at them would make me feel so much better. To lie would get me out of this problem. Whatever it might be, whatever sin, however small you might think it is, it will always take you farther than you want to go. So I tell you now, don't fall into it and don't hold on to your sin. It will steal your joy and it will cause you to feel distant from the Lord. And this can be seen in our second takeaway, which is sin results in prayerlessness. When we are in some kind of an ongoing sin, the last thing that we want to do is be in the presence of the Lord. It makes us uncomfortable to listen to preaching. We squirm a little bit when we sit down and we read scripture. The worst of all is we begin to avoid the great and majestic blessing of being before the Lord in prayer. Now, we have a privilege. Don't mistake this. We have a massive privilege of being able to go before the God of the universe to enter into his own throne room in prayer, but instead we hide our faces in cowardice, imagining that God can't see us, like a child who plays hide-and-seek by covering their eyes, and they think that you can't see them. That's what we are doing when we are hiding in our sin. Now consider this. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, when Jonah is still asleep, the pagan sailors begin to pray, and they pray to their own gods who cannot hear them. And then in verse 6, when the captain wakes up Jonah from his sleep, he says, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will hear and will respond. He tells Jonah to pray, but Jonah doesn't pray. And then when we see Jonah confess to the sailors, you would think at this point he realizes, well, I just need to make this right between me and God. But no, he still continues running from the Lord. He does not pray, and he does not seek God's forgiveness. Instead, he just says, just throw me overboard. And then, get this, in chapter 1, verse 17, it says that he was in the belly of the fish for three days before he would pray. That is a bizarre thing to think. that This man refused to turn his face toward heaven for three days while he was being consumed by the stomach acid of a fish. Now, brothers and sisters, I can tell you from personal experience that when I've been captured by sin, the natural result is prayerlessness. I don't desire the presence of the Lord, and I don't go before his throne because I don't want to feel that light in my darkness. I know that I have this area of sin that I don't want to let go of. And when you are caught in any kind of sin, I encourage you to quickly do what Jonah did not. Turn your face to heaven in prayer. This is what we see Jonah finally do here. He lays down his pride. He stops running. And for the first time, we see that he looks up heavenward in prayer. And it doesn't matter how far he ran. As soon as he turns around, God is right there to hear him. Now consider verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. A couple of takeaways here from this. Notice the fact that he says, as soon as he calls out, 
In his distress, God hears him. Do you know that that is the pattern constantly of God's people? If you will just turn your heart to him, he will hear you. That is something we have gotten used to hearing. But the fact of the matter is the God of the universe is so gracious and kind that we have become used to his grace. Be blown away once again at the fact that God hears your voice in your distress and he will answer you. He says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Now he is going to use this word Sheol often. Sheol is literally the word that is used for the grave. It is also the word that is used for the abyss, which is just the bottom of the sea or the bottom of the earth. Now he says, uh, he may have been far from the Lord here, uh, but I want you to jump down to verse 7. It says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Do you see what Jonah is saying here? I, I really love this way that he puts it. He is saying, I prayed to you in this dark, silent place. I am far below the waves where nobody can see me. Nobody can hear me. For all intents and purposes, I'm already dead. I'm already in the grave. I'm in the abyss. But the cry of my heart somehow traveled all the way to your throne. And no matter where you are, God can hear you. It made it all the way to his holy temple. Brothers and sisters, we have a great promise that God hears us. And when we pray, God's ear is inclined to us. The delight of, him, of God's heart is in the prayers of his people. And when Jonah called out in prayer, God was quick to hear and immediately answered. Consider now takeaway number three. Sin results in discipline. Let me just pause for a second and go back here to this notion of God's answering prayer. The fact of the matter is, what we see is, it probably took three days for this fish to swim in the direction of Assyria. God had actually answered this prayer before Jonah even prayed it. He had already begun working out the direction of that fish before Jonah even opened his mouth. When Jonah opens his mouth in prayer, eventually that fish bursts open and spills him out onto the dry land. But consider here, point number three, sin results in discipline. Don't you find it interesting that God didn't just let Jonah go his own way? God could have just found a different prophet and told him to go to Nineveh, but he didn't. He could have just let Jonah go and spend the rest of his life like on a beach in Tarshish, right? But he doesn't. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6 teaches us not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor to be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God loves Jonah too much to allow him to just go on living in outright rebellion. So he displays his love by taking every comfort imaginable away from him. He brings Jonah right to the doorstep of death itself. And listen, some of the ways that Jonah describes this are quite horrific. Consider his experience under the sea, verse 3 and following. For you cast me into the deep. Have any of you ever been in the ocean and maybe you were a kid, maybe this was last year, I don't know, and you just got a little too far from the beach and you realized, oh man, it's going to be a long swim back. And you start to look the other direction and see just how big the ocean is. And you realize, I can't touch. Like, I got to get back to the, to the beach. Otherwise, I'm going to be underneath of these waves. And you're just next to the, yeah, I mean, you're close enough, people can still see you. He says here that he was in the depths of the sea. He had been thrown into the deep into the heart of the seas itself, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and billows passed over me. Here's an interesting reality, and that is that in the Bible, being covered with water is a picture of judgment. Being covered with water happens many times. One of the most uh, notable is that after the crossing of the Red Sea, 
The Israelites walk through on dry land. Everyone is safe. And then the Egyptian army pursues. And what does God do? do? He covers them up with the waters. The picture of baptism is also a picture of going through the water unscathed. We go under the water and we are safe and protected. And we come up and we have not experienced the judgment. Here we see that Jonah is going under the water and that he is going to come up unscathed. God loves Jonah, but he allows him to experience this great suffering by casting him into the deep. And then it says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, if you've ever gone through a miserable time in your Christian walk where you have felt far from the Lord, and if you've ever gone through suffering of an extreme nature in your physical body, you will know that the thing that troubles your soul much more is the destruction of your relationship with the Lord. The way that you feel far from Him is worse for you than feeling the physical distra- uh, distraught nature of your body. You feel that in a deeper way. And so here He says, even more than being under the waves, I am driven away from your sight. That is a horrific notion. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. What a testimony that is. Here he's praying before he is even released from the fish and says, yet you have brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. What is he talking about here? Because God has not yet released him from the fish. He is either looking forward in faith, knowing that God will release him for the fish, or more likely, and I think this is probably the case, he is looking to the fact that after he dies, his life will be redeemed. He knows that God has loved him and will save him, and that in the end he will stand and see his Redeemer. So this is not what Jonah was expecting when he boarded the ship back in Joppa. This was not the pleasure cruise that he paid for. Oftentimes, The discipline of the Lord that we experience from God is just Him allowing us to experience the natural consequences of our own sin. In other words, He allows us to feel the effect of our cause. God was not being vindictive by pursuing Jonah in this way. God was not displaying hatred or animosity by sending the storm. Sometimes when you sin and then you feel the consequences of your sin, you feel as though God is picking on you or you feel as though God is unkind or unloving to you. But you must understand that just like Jonah, God is showing the loving hand of discipline. God is infinitely more invested in the good of your eternal soul than he is in your circumstances or your physical body. Hebrews chapter 12 continues and says it this way, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, I love my kids. My kids love to play. In particular, for some reason, they love to play in the direction of the street. So I love my kids, and I tell them, please don't do that. But not only do I tell them, I also correct them when they disobey. So when I see Mordecai, my three-year-old, running in the direction of the street, I get him and I tell him, you cannot cross the sidewalk, you cannot go into the street. And when he inevitably does it again, what do I do? Mordecai, you're back there. I lovingly care for him and I discipline him to teach him not to cross the sidewalk, not to go into the street. I do that because I love him. If I didn't love him, I would not pursue him. I would not discipline him. I would just let him go. But I do love him. And God loves us, and we see that God loves Jonah. 
Hebrews concludes in verse chapter 12 by saying, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And I would say that was certainly true for Jonah. He spent three days slowly waiting to be swallowed completely and expelled by this fish. But Hebrews chapter 12 continues by saying, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's discipline is a sign of God's love. It would be better to avoid his discipline, though, by just avoiding sinning altogether. So I encourage you, if there is sin in your life, don't wait to be treated in a similar manner as being swallowed by fish. I don't think that would be the course of God's discipline for you, but you don't want to experience it. And the, the deeper you go into sin, the deeper God goes to draw you out. Fourth, I want you to notice that there's a shift that will be taking place. So far, everything that we have said is that sin results in something. Now we are going to see what sin requires. Sin requires sacrifice. Look down to verse 9. It says, But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now this is an important moment in the prayer. To a Jew, sacrifice meant something very, very specific. Sacrifice was only necessary because of sin. Unlike the pagans, the sacrificial system of the Jews had not been done or set up in order to sustain God. The true God does not need food to provide for him. He doesn't need anything from you or I. The sacrifices were not ultimately for God. The sacrifices were made for their own sake, to cover for their own sin. It was a promise that God would overlook their actions. It was a way to postpone the penalty of their sin until a final payment could be made by Christ. Sacrifice always indicates blood covering sin. So when Jonah declares that he will make a sacrifice, he is in effect acknowledging the fact and confessing to the fact that he is a sinner and that he needs God's grace in his life. One thing that we need to be careful about here is the other part of the phrase and make sure we understand what it means. He says, what I have vowed, I will pay. How many of you have ever done this? You fall into some sort of sin and then you begin to feel the consequences of your sin. And so what you do is you beg God to get you out. You plead with God to, to fix your problems so that you don't feel the pain of it anymore. And you just say, God, if you just get me out of this, then I will never sin again. And I will never, ever do this thing, never again. I will never, and then you fill in the blank with whatever sin that you're falling into. How long does that promise last? As long as your pain lasts. As soon as your pain is over, you forget and you go back to doing exactly what you had done before. Now you will notice that at the end of chapter 1, the pagan sailors also make vows to the Lord. This is a common practice in Judaism. I want you to see, this is not the kind of vow that Jonah is making, where you just say, if you get me out, then I'll do what you want. No, that's not the kind of vow that's taking place. Vows are very prevalent in the scripture. Here's one example of a vow that David made, Psalm 56, 12. He says, I must perform my vows to you, O God, I will render a thank offering to you. So what is his vow? Well, we don't know the entirety of his vows, but we know that one of the vows that he made was that he would give a public offering of thanksgiving to God, that he would declare his love and his thankfulness in a public manner to what God has done for him. Now, this notion of vowing to the Lord is all over the Old Testament. We don't know all the specifics of how people vowed. It was a very personal thing. All that we know is this. These were not promises that were made in order to convince God to love them. These were not done to manipulate his favor. These vows were promises made to God saying that they would be committed to him to follow him because of who he is and because of what he has done. It is a reaction to God's action. 
And in reality, we vow to the Lord on a regular basis. We sing songs all the time that are filled with vows to the Lord. Have you ever sung, I have decided to follow Jesus? No turning back, no turning back. That is a vow. What you are doing is you are promising, I am going to follow my Savior, and I will not go back to who I was before. That is a promise that you are making. So what we see happening is that we often do what they did in the Old Testament in a private way, we do in a corporate way through our singing. Yet, we do the same thing that Jonah does. We walk out of church, and then we forget what we have sung, and we fail to honor our vows just like Jonah did. So just like Jonah, we are called to repent, and we are called to begin to live out those things that we promise and as we sing. So Jonah is declaring that if the Lord allows him to live, he is going to stop rebelling, He's going to go back into living in alignment with the promises that he has made to honor God. He will do his vows. Then we see our fifth takeaway, sin requires salvation. Now, in a sense, Jonah is a picture of all of us. Like the prodigal son, he also ran from God. And due to his rebellion, he found himself in a place of absolute hopelessness. The only way that he could ever escape this condition was through divine intervention. You don't just escape from inside of the belly of a fish. Even if you get out, you still drown. Titus chapter 3 explains our situation this way. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That was you, and that was me. That is where we were before our salvation. But Titus continues, and he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's one sentence, and I encourage you, if you have decided to memorize something with your New Year's Eve resolutions, that's a good place to start. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Jonah concludes correctly in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Just like Titus is saying, it is not of my effort, it is not of my works, it is by the grace of God. Here we see in Jonah 9, he also says, salvation belongs to, it is owned by, controlled by, and given away only by the Lord. If you are saved, it is all because of his work on your behalf. You could not possibly undo your actions. You could not possibly reverse the curse on your own. Your salvation from beginning to end is owned by him. It belongs to the Lord. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 5, uh, chapter 2, verses 8-9. through 9. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you are currently in a far worse position than the belly of a fish. In fact, in a very real way, your soul is waiting outside the gates of hell itself, just waiting for the moment of death to grant you access. Your sin has resulted in your need of a Savior. And if you have no realization of that, then you are blinded to your real status in this world. But I want you to know that you have something much better than a fish to bring you up. The Lord Jesus Christ has come down here to earth to save sinners like you and me. And if you will only believe that Jesus died for you and rose for your justification, you will be saved. And that can happen because, takeaway number five, sin requires, I'm sorry, takeaway number six, sin requires a savior. 
Consider Jesus. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the anti-Jonah, that God sent him on a mission and sent him to his enemies to preach a message of mercy. He did not run the opposite direction like Jonah. He ran to us. And when he came, he was not received, but despised and rejected by us. But there's even more to this story about Jesus being the anti-Jonah. One day, when Jesus was speaking to a group of Pharisees, they said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They, of course, were sinfully asking for Jesus just to prove himself. They wanted him to perform on command. So he responds to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now notice that Jesus refers to himself as the greater Jonah. Jonah was punished for his own sin. Jesus was punished for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, not his own. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He descended much deeper than Jonah did. He did not merely go to the gates of Sheol like Jonah says he did. When he was on the cross, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus entered into the grave itself. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus Christ has experienced the curse of sin. That promise that was given to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Jesus has never tasted the fruit of sin, yet he tasted death for us. But what was the sign Jesus was talking about when he's speaking with the Pharisees? It was not the sign that Jonah would go preach to his enemies, although Jesus did that too. It was not only that he would go under judgment, although Jesus did that too. The sign is that Jesus was going to show them that he would, just like Jonah, come back up. He went before us into the grave in order that he might rise and be what John and Paul both call the firstborn from the dead. That is what he means by the sign of Jonah. He is prefacing his resurrection. He is coming back to life. You can take my life from me because I lay it down of my own accord. And then... I will take it back up again. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up, he says. Jonah points us to a great Savior, Jesus, who died for sinners like you and me. And like Jonah, like the Ninevites, Jesus has gone before us, gone under for us, and he has come up for us so that we, like the Ninevites, might be redeemed. Jesus is the exclamation point of this story in Jonah. He is the point. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would please help us to be in awe of you. Lord, if there is anyone here who is caught in sin as a believer, I pray that you would lovingly draw them back to yourself. I pray that just like Jonah, you would pursue them, you would bring them to yourself again so that they might be restored to a right relationship, so that they might experience your joy and your love once again. And Father, if there is anyone in the room who doesn't know you, somebody who is still outside of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would please work in their lives now to see that Jesus Christ 
is the greater Jonah. I pray that they would see the sign of his resurrection and they would be aware of the fact that they desperately need his forgiveness and would be saved. Lord, for all of the things that we have heard today, I pray that you would give clarity and that you would give the ability to remember and know that Jesus Christ is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.